Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. All right, Kevin. So we we made it through the original trilogy, the prequel trilogy. We talked about the Clone Wars. And here we are. We find ourselves at uh, a Virgins. Where do we go from here? So I think we're going to take a little uh, detour off the trilogies. And we're going to talk about one of the uh, sort of independent stories. We're going to talk about Solo. Uh, a Star Wars story. <laughs> a Star Wars story, right. So this is essentially the origin story of Han Solo. Uh, we, we spent some time earlier today kind of talking about the timeline of where we are in the the galaxy far, far away. And, and really what we're looking at is there's 18 years from Empire Day, which is when Luke and Leia are born and the Empire you know, takes over to the Battle of Yavin. So where we are with the origin story for Han Solo were about 13 years before the Battle of Yavin, so five years after Empire Day. That's right. And just to remind everybody, the timeline of Star Wars that everybody, you know, that's sort of documented everything is centered around the Battle of Yavin. So all of the time, um, the years are before Battle of Yavin or BBY and after Battle of Yavin or ABY. So yeah, we start out this movie about 13 BBY. All right, great. So because we recognize not everyone's as familiar with this movie um, or Star Wars in general, but especially this movie as we are, we're going to walk you guys through before we get into the plot, kind of the main characters that we should know before we go into the plot. Uh, The other thing is, I just want to point out, this movie was not successful in the box office. I still don't quite understand why. But, you know, maybe we'll uncover that as we walk through our analysis of it. Yeah, I really liked it. So I, I don't really understand. And I think we went and saw it at least twice. Um, I know that uh, some friends of ours that we go to see movies had to see it a second time because of something we'll talk about later uh, that happened during the first movie. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought it was really great. And um, it must it was either there was some competition in the box office or some sort of fatigue or something. I know this came out after uh, The Last Jedi, which wasn't particularly well received. So there may have been a little backlash to that. But yeah, it was I think it's a pretty great movie. Um, you know, it's probably not top five, but it's certainly in the top half. It's enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So to get into it, um, let's start with the characters here. So we've got some main characters. Uh, We've got Han Solo. When we meet him, he's about 16 years old. um, And we also meet his girlfriend. Her name's Kira. uh, And they are uh, unfortunately slaves, basically. Yeah, more or less. I mean, you can, they're, um, it's sort of a a classic trope in fiction where you've kind of got runaway children that are, you know, you can call them enslaved or whatever by, uh, you know, some sort of criminal adults. And uh, they're forced to do crime on behalf of their caretakers. Right. And, and who's their quote unquote caretaker? Here? Uh, is uh, this sort of snakeish looking uh, critter called Lady Proxima. And she runs um, like a criminal syndicate on the planet Corellia. Uh, Corellia is basically a, a shipyard planet uh, somewhere in the in the middle rim. You can think of it kind of as the Gary, Indiana, or maybe Newport News, Virginia of uh, of the galaxy. It's basically all industrial. They're building star destroyers. Um, you know, not not the most uh, not the most fun. Not a lot of green space. Let's say not a lot of parks. Right, right, right. So um, we also are going to meet throughout our adventures uh, a guy named. Tib- uh, Beckett, 
uh, Tobias Beckett, and he's kind of the leader of some other um, morally flexible folks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically he leads a he leads a small crime gang. <laughs> Right, right, right. And and that's the other thing that it's important to know is that normally in the Star Wars movie, we see the scroll that kind of walks us through all the different things going on in the universe um, at the time. But this time it's not quite a scroll. It's a handful of sentences that come about. And we learn that, you know, it's just there's a lot of corruption going on. All these crime syndicates are coming to power because the Empire is struggling to take over the galaxy because they're still trying to hold on to what they thought they had when they were the Republic, but they're also struggling to get those separatist planets to really truly join in. And then there was a bunch of planets that were sort of neutral, but now that Empire doesn't really want them to be neutral. Yeah, that's right. All right, so uh, Beckett has uh, his girlfriend, or I guess wife, significant other, named Val. Yep. And then uh, another guy who's got several sets of arms. His name's Rio Durant. And uh, so the the three of them are are criminals together. Uh, We also meet a much younger Lando Calrissian. Uh, Don't worry, everyone. He is still quite the ladies' man that uh, Billy D. Williams' rendition of him leads us to believe he's supposed to be. Yeah, Donald Glover does a really, really awesome job of, uh, you know, kind of keeping that character in character, and and, uh, it's a really good performance. Yeah, and and along with that, he's got his own droid, because no Star Wars movie is complete without droids, and this droid's name is L7. Uh, She is the first female droid we've really had any significant screen time with, and... uh, she, she's a character. She is quite a character. She's uh, very independent. She's kind of, uh, she has this whole, um, you know, like droid rights kind of deal going on. Um, but she also has, uh, or, or she has some romantic feelings for Lando and feels like he has romantic feelings for her. And this is probably the first time that we've seen, you know, she's got a lot more personality than a lot of droids, probably on par with R2-D2, except she speaks basic. Um, and so you kind of, you get a little bit more flavor of it, but her and Lando's relationship is probably the first time that we've kind of seen um, a potential romantic relationship between a droid and, a, and, a, and an organic being. Right, because before we've seen them be like co-workers, possibly friends, we've seen the like dog puppy type relationship with bb-8 but now we we might have a romantic relationship with a droid um we also get to meet chewbacca which is fantastic so we we get to uh track han and chewbacca's relationship as, as that involves uh we also meet two other very interesting characters that we'll get into when we talk about the plot but the the bad guy or, or so we learn to be part of the bad guy is this guy named dryden boss um, and he's the same guy that plays Vision in the Avengers movies. So in case you're wondering, wait, where do I know that guy from? That, that's Vision. Um, and then Enfys Nest, and that is a, a character that we'll just get into uh, when we get to that part in the movie. So we, we talked about the places, Corellia. Um, there's a handful of other scenes that we'll, we'll just kind of go through. They're, it doesn't really matter where we are. They just happen to happen in the galaxy. And then there's uh, Kessel, which is very important and a running theme throughout pretty much all of Han Solo's adventures in Star Wars. Yeah, and um, and you know Kessel is is an interesting planet because you know it was first mentioned by C three PO 
during one of the original trilogy movies. I don't even remember when, but you know, he when he's in one of his you know freak out whining, he says, "We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel, Kessel smashed into whatever." And then in the um, in the Legends books, uh, Kessel is a, a sort of a recurring theme in in Legends. Kessel is a planet not far from Corellia, surrounded by a set of black holes called the Maw. And you know the whole thing about getting to Kessel is you have to you have to you know fly through around or near these bunch of black holes. In this movie, they sort of change it up, and it's this thing called the Maelstrom, which is a, a gas cloud full of um, carbonbergs. They say which are like sort of planet size rocks that are smashing into each other and there's one safe way to navigate through it. We'll talk about what that means later. But um, uh, Kessel just holds a kind of a, a special place in a lot of the canon. So, and and then of course, the most famous reference to Kessel is Han Solo saying he made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs, um, which, you know, a parsec being a unit of distance has always been a thing of like, what does that mean? And uh, when we talk about the plot, we'll talk about what that actually means here. Um, but they finally put a canonical explanation on why he measures it in terms of distance and not in speed or time or any other kind of measure. Right, right. And, and then the last thing, um, you know, just to kind of round out the basics so that we're prepared to talk about this movie is there's a handful of things that come up. The, the first being the Millennium Falcon. Um, that That's the the ship that we've seen them on since the beginning, that this is Han Solo's ship. How does he get it? Because the movie does not begin with Han Solo flying the Millennium Falcon. So we've also got uh, those dice that Han hangs. So we're, we're going to see the origin of that as well. Uh, coaxium, Kevin, you want to tell people what that is? Yeah, so coaxium is, is they call it hyperfuel. It would appear that it is the fuel for hyperdrives. This is kind of one of the first times that they've introduced the concept of fuel into uh, into Star Wars. We've every once in a while heard somebody talk about, like, we need to refuel or, you know, I think... Um, uh, at one point, Obi-Wan Kenobi stopped on a planet during the Clone War and said, you know, I need to refuel and use this as a base. But we really don't talk about fuel as much in Star Wars, and we don't really talk about the technology of hyperdrives, but coaxium would appear to be the fuel for hyperdrives. And it's incredibly unstable, as most fuels are, and uh, highly explosive. So, you know, that's a fun thing to have in quantity. Right, right. So we'll get to why that is an uh, important development later. Uh, we also learn about this card game called Sabak. Uh, what is it like? Poker? Would you say it's more like baccarat? I think, but it's a uh, yeah, it's a game that again has been you know commonplace through the Legends canon. It's been mentioned in places. Um, they actually there are established rules, and I think at Galaxy's Edge they actually sell Sabak decks. Um, but it's basically a game where you're trying. It's similar to poker in terms that it has betting rounds and things. You're trying to get a score of t positive or negative 23, um, and the closest to 23 wins. It's got suits and numbers, um, and but it it plays like a variety of different combination of games. In this movie, they play with basically paper cards, like we would play with playing cards. In a lot of the books, they refer to electronic cards where during the game at various intervals the cards can change um, which adds yet another element of chance and makes it really just purely a bluffing game um, in in this uh, for reasons and, and again things we'll get into in the plot uh, they're paper cards and that's relevant um, but yeah it's just it's basically your your basic card game people play it people cheat at it people bet insane things on it um, and uh, and you know it's one of those things that fuels the underworld of the galaxy Right, right. 
And so, speaking of the underworld, nice uh, segue there, Kevin. We've got the crime syndicates, and there's probably half a dozen kind of running different scams across the galaxy. And two that are important to keep in mind for the movie here is Crimson Dawn and the Pikes. And we met the Pikes in the Clone Wars. That's right. So the Pikes are, are a known crime syndicate. And most of these crime syndicates run um, spice, which is essentially drugs. Um, it's just that it's sort of the generic galactic term for drugs. Um, and then they'll run weapons and other things. Yeah, I mean, the main crime syndicate. So the Pikes, yeah, we met in the Clone Wars. Um, the Crimson Dawn is something sort of new in this movie. The Huts, just to round it out, are another, you know, big sort of crime family. And you can think of each of these as like different mafia groups, um, you know, in, in our in our world. Um, but they're basically just underworld groups that have quite a bit of power, a lot of, uh, um, you know, impunity, um, a lot of money. And, uh, and they tend to hire independent folks like uh, Beckett and Han Solo and then... Um, treat them well if they do well and treat them with execution if they do poorly. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we, we remember seeing Han Solo frozen in carbonite as part of uh, Boba Fett's uh, bounty form. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't mess with the crime syndicates. So, yeah. Not surprisingly, the, the first thing that we see when the movie starts is the beginning scroll and it says it's a lawless time. And it is. Um, and, you know, and then that sort of segues into uh, Han Solo doing some crime on behalf of Lady Proxima or trying to anyway. He um, he opens the movie with um, he's supposed to be trading some coaxium for some credits. Um, and he I guess the people that he's selling the coaxium to take his uh, goods and don't give him the money. But he manages to sneak one of the vials of coaxium into his own pocket and then makes his way back to Kira with it. Yeah, literally no honor among thieves here. So, you know, we, we've got him. He's stolen this coaxium. It's probably good for between 600 to 800 credits, which what we learn um, is that he and Kira are in love with each other and they want to run away. They want to stop being under, uh, you know, the control and they think that they can somehow bribe their way out with this. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a whole chase scene. He escapes. They escape from Lady Proxima's sort of like, you know, lair or whatever and uh, run away from her goons, get to Coronet Spaceport. Coronet's the capital of Corellia. And they don't have ID chips. They don't have essentially they don't have passports and they don't have a ticket. You're not allowed to get into the, the boarding area without without an ID chip or a boarding pass. And they bribe an Imperial Guard to let them through the gate. And just as they're passing through the gate, Han makes it through and uh, Proxima's goons grab Kira and pull her back to the other side. And then the bribed Imperial officer sounds the, you know, security breach alarm. Again, uh, no honor among thieves. Yeah, no honor. There's really no honor among anybody in this in this whole situation, honestly. Um, and uh, after she triggers the alarm, um, you know, Han has to sort of run away from stormtroopers. It's actually kind of a depressing. I mean, it's it's an accurate but depressing scene of you know just stormtroopers going around randomly hassling a lot of people. Um, right. It it kind of reminds me of some movies I've seen that depict you know World War Two scenarios in, in Europe where you know they're asking for people's papers looking for people who look a certain way um, it, it's just really unsettling and just kind of lends that entire tone of desperation in the galaxy at that time uh, one of the things that we learn is that Han is quick on his feet and he's a 
he's also a romantic. Uh, we we learn about that. He's really hopelessly in love. Yeah. And I mean, as she's being taken away, he kind of says, hey, I'll come back for you. You know, like, I'll, I'll come back for you. And then he's trying to figure out for the next several years how to get back there to uh, to save his girl. Right. And, and so at this point, Han is going to be caught if he doesn't find a way to hide so he, he steals a cloak from somebody he steals a hat off another person and he's trying to blend into the crowd but there's just too many stormtroopers he doesn't know his way living on the outside we don't know the last time he was you know living as a free person we don't know when that was and, and so he's really struggling and what does he see he sees a billboard tv screen basically telling him you know join the imperial navy learn how to fly and uh, he, he's thinking, I could do that. I've always wanted to be a pilot. Yeah, and it seems like kind of his only way out. He has no way to get on board like a commercial ship. And so um, he decides to enlist in the Imperial military. It is kind of funny, the the like little screen um, showing that uh, that video is playing the Imperial March that we all know and love as their sort of recruitment song, which I thought was a nice little touch. I, I agree. I thought that was funny. Um, it's supposed to like inspire, you know, doom and gloom and fear and all of that. But really, it was supposed to suggest that they should, you know, feel patriotic and join the Imperial Army. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty good like military march song, honestly. Um, yeah, it's yeah, not the for worst. sure. We we played a lot of that in marching band. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so he he goes in and he enlists and he says he wants to be a pilot. And then um, you know, there's sort of a scroll and it says three years later. And uh, we find him um, not flying. No, no. Turns out if you want to be a pilot, you have to, you know, be respectful. You have to pay attention to orders. You have to do as you're told. And he's not good at that. Yeah. There's actually a deleted scene um, that I watched from the movie where he basically, there was some situation where he was out flying and he disobeyed orders, I think, to save some fellow pilots. And when he's brought up for for court martial, he kind of smarts off and is like, well, look, I took out all the enemies and I saved all these, you know, other pilots. And they're like, yeah, but you disobeyed orders again. And uh, he gets kicked out of the Imperial Navy and sent to basically be a uh, an infantry trooper. And this is the first time that we see that the Empire has um, like ground troops that are not stormtroopers. Like he's not a stormtrooper. He's less than a stormtrooper. which has got to be pretty, pretty brutal. Yeah, I think at one point they referred to them as cannon fodder, basically. Yeah. 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 And even the even some of the officers that are down there with him that aren't stormtroopers, I mean, they're just getting blown up left and right. So they're on some planet um, and they're trying to uh, put down some sort of insurrection or, or, you know, to their words, liberate the planet. But I think they're really just trying to uh, take over Imperial control of some random planet. Right. And... You know, it's just a mess down there. The battle is unpleasant. Uh, Han definitely doesn't seem to love what's happening. And, you know, the the commander of that unit dies. And then all of a sudden, who steps up but Tobias Beckett? And he starts calling the shots. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense because he didn't look like he was expecting to be calling the shots. And eventually, Han kind of catches on to that. Yeah, and I mean, he starts calling the shots because he's wearing the uh, armor and uniform of, of an Imperial captain. Um, obviously, it doesn't take Han a ton of time to realize 
that the you know the laser burns in that armor uh, right in the chestal area uh, probably indicate that it was stolen from somebody and that he's not truly a captain and that he's actually part of uh, a crew doing some sort of mischief and Han volunteers to join them and uh, Beckett and company don't really want any help at this point and uh, turn him into the other Imperials as a deserter. Right, right. And and so we already knew from A New Hope that Han Solo starts out as a morally ambiguous character. And, you know, he winds up throughout his path becoming, you know, for the most part, morally righteous. But, you know, how did he get to that morally ambiguous phase? And, and this is where we see it. We, we see him making those types of choices where he's looking to protect himself as his number one you know, objective is make sure he's okay so that he can go back for Kira. And that means joining up with these clowns in, you know, stolen uniforms off dead guys. And instead he gets turned in, he gets thrown into a dungeon with uh, th this monster, basically. Yeah. So. And um, and so this monster comes out of the shadows and it turns out it's a Wookiee. Uh, and um, it's a hungry Wookiee. It's a hungry Wookiee. The stormtroopers say they haven't fed him in like three days. And uh, he starts beating on Han until Han starts speaking Wookiee at him. Um, not well. Not well, but enough that uh, the Wookiee, who is, of course, Chewbacca, uh, understands him. And they work together to escape the, the little dungeon, uh, take out the guards, and then start uh, running away. And Han sort of drags Chewbacca with him uh, toward Beckett and company because he knows that they're... they're on the planet to steal uh, basically the, a, a ship that lifts AT-ATs and other large things. They call it an AT hauler. And um, and he and Chewbacca go running after them, sort of wave them down. And the, the Beckett crew hesitate for a minute, but then uh, Rio convinces them that having a Wookiee on their team wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, which I don't know if you noticed the line a little bit after they get picked up. Um, Han says, "Yeah, Chew you know, he says to Chewie like something like, yeah, they picked me up. They, they picked you up just because of me." Well, it turns out that's actually not exactly true. They picked up Han because of Chewie. Right, right. And uh Rio his line is something uh, to the tune of, you know, you've never slept so well unless you've snuggled with a wookiee or something. <laughs> Curled like up that. in a wookiee's lap, I think is what he says. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, which makes me just kind of wonder when did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's like, there's still a number of Wookiees in the galaxy. Um, and so, you know, he, Rio, I don't know how old Rio is, but he seems like he's been around. So, you know, yeah, maybe. he's a fun loving guy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But uh, for all of our experiences with Wookiees up until this point, you know, they were on Kashyyyk. They were fighting, you know, with the Republic. Um, you know, Chewbacca was in enslaved in prison you know we're gonna see some other Wookiees later as well uh so you know it, it doesn't really seem like they had a lot of time for snuggling mm, probably not but you know but uh, here we are but maybe here we it's are just like an urban myth or something yeah I mean maybe it's just an expression who knows yeah, who knows um so what is it that uh, they're gonna go do so yeah so after they kind of get off the mud planet they they're sitting around a campfire and they're talking about the job and they're basically doing a classic train heist um, there is um, a, an imperial train that has an entire train car full of coaxium that's worth oodles of money. Uh, and they're going to, you know, they're going to do your pretty standard, you know, sneak up on the train, land on top of the train, uncouple the cars. Um, they have some needlessly complicated thing that involves blowing up a bridge for some reason. But they're basically going to steal a train car full of coaxium. That's the job. 
Right. And I personally think the scene goes on a little bit too long, but that's par for the course with all Star Wars chase movies and that kind of thing. And to be honest, most train heist scenes, um, you know, from Firefly through many others that I've seen in Westerns and in in Western sci-fis, train heists seem to always take a little bit longer than they should and come down to the wire. Um, But, you know, the long and the short of it is in the course of this train heist, a couple of things happen. Um, One thing is uh, Emphis Nest shows up. Right, and we learn that Enfys Nest shows up repeatedly during um, this gang's criminal activities. Yeah, and so Enfys Nest is described as a, a gang of marauders. She brings probably about seven or eight, um, you know, partners with, and um, and they've been sort of following behind Beckett and stealing his jobs out from under him for some reason. And so you know they. At some point, I think Val um, warns him that Emphis Nest may be coming, and he says, no, 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 my guy's the only guy who's got the intel on this. Like, we shouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but then Emphis Nest shows up, and, you know, one of Nest's people ends up shooting Rio in the shoulder. Rio is the pilot, uh, and so that gives Han an opportunity to jump into the AT hauler and take over flying. Um, and uh, And then... Um, you know, the battle continues right up to the last minute. Unfortunately, Val has to blow up the bridge with herself on it. Um, Rio does not recover from his shoulder injury. So, and then the nest folks and Han, uh, tussle over the train car, uh, full of coaxium. So they've got, they've got ropes in it. He's got ropes on it. And, uh, what do they, what do they do? Well, as you mentioned earlier, coaxium is highly volatile. So big boom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, and it's basically Han, you know, Han and Nest are sort of flying toward a mountain and Han decides to cut the cables and let go of the cargo to save himself and Chewie and incidentally Beckett. Um, and Beckett the whole time is yelling at him to play chicken with the mountain that Nest people will let go. But Han's sort of self-preservation instinct takes over and he decides to drop the cargo before getting himself killed. And this is sort of foreshadowing to uh, something that, of course, happens to him later during his service to Jabba the Hutt. Right. He ends up on Jabba's, you know, uh, list because at some point he dumps his cargo when he's about to be boarded by Imperials. Right. And so this is sort of a nod to uh, that whole situation and shows sort of a pattern with him that he's going to save himself instead of finishing the job and then deal with the consequences later. Right, right. Which then if we fast forward to the original trilogy, we get to see how Han's really grown and developed as, you know, a human being in that he cares about others and not just himself. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they blow up all the coaxium because Han isn't going to win that game of chicken. And then he's like, hey, at least we're still alive. Well, Beckett isn't happy about that. He's like, dude, that wasn't my coaxium. That wasn't your coaxium. We were doing a job for someone else, and that someone else is going to be completely upset with us. Yeah. So they were, unbeknownst to Han and Chewie, they were working for Crimson Dawn and uh, Dryden Voss. And, um, and, you know, Han's like, yeah, so what? Like, I'm already an Imperial deserter, so, you know, I was already kind of screwed anyway. And, um, and Beckett makes an interesting point. He said, the Empire doesn't go after deserters, but Crimson Dawn, if you mess up a job for them, they will, they will go out of their way to hunt you down and kill you up good. <laughs> yeah, they, they need to make an example of, out of people that don't do the work that they pay him for. That's right. 
Right, because that's how criminals operate. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's the big difference is that we do learn that the Empire, even though they might be evil, they're not criminals. So they're not going to go after uh, Han for being a deserter. But we, we do learn that now he's gotten himself in over his head. That's right. And so the only choice that they really have is to go to Dryden Voss and sort of beg his forgiveness, um, which they do. So they go visit uh, Dryden Voss's yacht, which happens to be on the planet that they're on because they were supposed to be delivering the Quaxium directly to him. And um, and Dryden Voss's yacht is you know it's a it's a weirdly vertically oriented spaceship, um, but it's basically at the like at the top of the ship. There's a, a big party room, and we of course we have another classic Star Wars uh, room full of creatures situation. Uh, so we get a little pan around. Um, you know the singer is some sort of you know like woman dressed in gold, and then the thing like singing a duet with her is like a frog in a jar. Because why not? Right. It's very similar to when we meet Jabba and he's got all those people hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a little bit more upscale because we're in a yacht and not a cave. Yeah. 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 But it, it, it has a lot of the same like kind of scenic feel of Jabba's palace or the cantina or a few other you know scenes. Maz Kanata's tavern uh, when we get to that. Um, but yeah, so they go in there and they meet with, with Beckett. And while they're waiting for Beckett... Um, it sort of pans over and, and one of Beckett's assistants says he's finishing up with the regional governor and his finishing up is him stabbing the regional governor in the chest. Wait, Dryden or Beckett? Sorry, Dryden. Did okay. I say Beckett? You did. I, you did. did. I meant Dryden, sorry. Okay. They go to see Dryden and while they're waiting for Dryden, he is stabbing the regional governor in the chest. Right. He's got this really cool weapon that kind of glows red, but it's not really a lightsaber, but it's, it looks kind of evil. It's called a vibroblade. Um, and what it basically is, is a blade that vibrates at a very high frequency and can cut through many other, many other things, other metals, and is pretty good for stabbing and slashing. Right, right. And so Beckett tells Han to stand around don't talk to anyone don't get in any trouble uh you know and, and han's like well maybe i'll you know have some shrimp cocktail and a, a drink or something but who does he run into kira yeah and so it turns out Kira's there because she is uh works for crimson dawn and she is in fact uh dryden voss's like chief lieutenant um yeah she's been busy the last three years she has been busy the last three years so she's somehow found her way into crimson dawn and, you know, they don't really explain very much in the movie of what she's been up to. Uh, in the book version of the movie, she got into some stuff. Um, and she basically, I mean, she was originally sold to them as some sort of slave. And she worked her way up through the organization and is now lieutenant to uh, Dryden Voss and his basically most trusted assistant. And, uh, and so she's sort of chatting with Han Solo when Dryden comes out and they have a little they have a little bit of a reunion and Han's like, hey, I was coming to rescue you. And she's like, you were doing what now? Yeah, she's like, no, that was ages ago. We've both grown up so much from that. Um, that's all in the past. And, and she's trying to not admit to what her current lifestyle entails. And so they all wind up in front of Dryden and really, you know, Beckett knows that they can't just tell you, dude, we, we can't do this. Uh, we, we can't give you your coaxium. He knows that they're all going to die if that's the case. But Han, like we know earlier and we'll see again, is quick on his feet. And he suggests, well, what if we could get you some coaxium? You know, maybe not the coaxium from the train car, but other coaxium. Would that work? And Dryden Voss is like, 
I take that coaxium. That's fine. Uh, but the only thing is they don't know where to find any. But right. they know where to find unrefined coaxium. Right. And so they talk about finding unrefined coaxium on Kessel, um, which is a, a viable plan, except that Kessel is run by the Pikes. The Pikes are in an uneasy truce with Crimson Dawn. Crimson Dawn can't disrupt that. And just when they're about to get executed, Han and Beckett are like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. We're not in a truce with, with anybody, so we could go do it. They would know that we're working for you. And then if we fail, we die. And if we succeed, you get your coaxium. And, and uh, Dryden's like, okay, sure. Kira, what do you think? And she says, yeah, that seems like a reasonable plan. He's like, okay, good. You go with them to make sure. Now, I want to point out two things that don't make any sense at all in this whole sequence. One is, if the plan is to have no association between Crimson Dawn people and this heist so as not to piss off the Pikes, sending Kira, who is definitely a Crimson Dawn person and has a Crimson Dawn tattoo on her wrist, is probably not the person that you would send to go with them. Like, I get it. Like, Dryden is sort of setting her up and, you know, and wants to make sure that these guys keep it honest. But that's a really dumb part of the plan. And then the second thing is they talk about Kessel as like the only place to get unrefined coaxium, except that if coaxium is the thing that makes hyperspace go and that the Imperials have a whole bunch of coaxium refineries, there's got to be some other place that you can get raw coaxium other than like the hardest planet to get to in the galaxy. Right, but I think we talked about this earlier, is that, yeah, it's a hard planet to get to, and as a result, it's one of those planets that doesn't have too many Imperial entanglements, and it also doesn't have, you know, a lot of people just hanging out there either. So this coaxium is basically theirs for the, the taking if they can get there. Yeah, I, and I think that's why they end up going there, but the way that they talk about it is almost like this is the only place you can get it, and that doesn't seem very reasonable, but... Right, but... So they've all come to an agreement. They're going to go. Uh, I think it's foolish for Dryden to send Kira with Han, knowing that they've got a past. I mean, they own up to it at the very beginning. And so, you know, just kind of the idea of sending, you know, former girlfriend, boyfriend out on an adventure, you know, it, it's kind of like he's testing where her loyalties lie. And I don't know if that's really the type of thing I would bet when, you know, I'm out a train car's worth of coaxium. Yeah, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's testing her as it would appear that he frequently does. Um, and so the, the thing, the last thing that they need to bring this whole thing together is a very fast ship because you need a fast ship to get in and out of Kessel in any reasonable period of time. Because apparently when you, and this is, the, my last gripe about their about their convoluted plan is that when you uh, have raw coaxium, you need to keep it warm. And for some reason, the containers that they store it in don't have like built-in heaters or anything, and like they've never heard of a heater. And so there's a time limit from when you can take it out of the heated vault to when you have to process it before it gets too cold and will explode or too warm. Wasn't it that it was supposed to be really cold and then it gets too hot? This is one of those plot devices that kind of gets thrown in that isn't very clear, but it's just to add this extra element of 
confusion and desperation. Yeah, well, and whichever way it is, it needs to be kept at a certain temperature. And for whatever reason, the containers and the cargo hold of the Millennium Falcon can't keep it at that temperature, which seems like cuckoo bananas to me, but you know, whatever. It's the plot device that they use to make it urgent that they go really, really fast, which means they need to find a fast ship, which leads them to uh, Lando Calrissian. Right, and so Kira knows Lando, and we see this very suave, handsome fellow playing cards, and he uh, immediately dials up the charm to 11 when he sees Kira, and Han's not happy about that. No, and clearly he and Kira have met before because they're obviously uh, familiar, and she also has... uh some descriptions of him that would lead you to believe that they've been more than just friends if you know what i mean i always know what you mean kevin but yes <laughs> um so yeah no that they've been very close and there's this animosity that immediately comes up between lando and han and lando's way of dealing with that is calling han han even though han repeatedly tells him his name isn't han it's han and so they, they just keep egging each other on and that's not great no, it's not great, and it continues through the whole through through, through the whole movie. But basically, uh, Han gets Kira to stake him in a game of sabacc that Lando is playing in, in an attempt to win Lando's ship because he feels like that's the easiest way to get access to Lando's ship. And uh, they play, and Han starts winning a lot. So what we learn about Han is he's a natural gambler. He's got this no fear attitude he's very good at reading the room he can pay attention he's good at getting cards dealt to him but he's feeling good he's feeling confident and he's good at cards yeah and you know as the pot starts to grow and his pile starts to grow he uh starts talking to lando about you know the ship that he has versus you know how good lando ship might must be and eventually gets um lando to uh, put his ship up in the pot against Han's ship and he knows he has a really really good hand and once he gets that he throws his cards down and it's some kind of I don't remember what it was but I think it was I think it may have been like a, a 23 which is a really really good hand and there's only one hand that can beat it which is the idiot's array and what does Lando have the idiot's array that's right so um all of a sudden now uh, Han loses everything Lando, in theory, gets Han's ship, which he doesn't actually have. Right, which is kind of a funny scene because Lando's like, I'll take your ship now. And Han's like, well, about that ship, I don't really have it. So he was bluffing with his bed altogether. That's right. And uh, and that's when sort of Kira steps in and, and says, hey, Lando, um, actually, this guy works for me. And uh, we're doing the Kessel Run. And the reason we were trying to gamble for your ship was we heard you're retired. And he's like, eh, am I retired? I don't know. Maybe I'm not retired. And then, you know, they sort of haggle for whatever. Yeah, Lando wants like 40% of the cut or something like that. And Beckett kind of talks him down and they agree to 25%. That's right. And so then um, they head down, they pick up L7, uh, which is sort of the first time we meet her. She is trying to convince, there's there's like a, in this gambling parlor, there's also a droid fight ring. Yeah, and the bar won't serve droids, which is kind of weird because it's like, why are droids drinking? How can they consume? Yeah, I think that's just sort of a riff on the whole, um, if you remember in A New Hope, 
uh, when they go into the cantina at Moss Eisley, he says, we don't serve your kind here. And he oh, kicks yeah. the droids out. And so I think it's more of like droids aren't allowed in there. Um, and it's a whole and, and again, she's got this whole droid droid rights thing and um, doesn't like that they're being excluded, which, you know, that's reasonable. They're somewhat sentient, I guess. And yeah, I mean, droids make everything go. Yeah. So they, they kind of deserve a little bit better racket than what they're stuck with. Yeah. And yeah. in a galaxy that still allows slavery, it definitely allows people to own droids that have like personalities and uh, and things. And so it seems a little bit weird. But anyway, so they scoop her up and uh, and head for the ship, which turns out the Millennium Falcon is impounded for some miscellaneous crime that Lando committed. And he convinces the the guys to the gang to help him uh, unimpound his ship, and then they head off to do the Kessel Run. Right, and we kind of see once Han gets on the ship that his eyes are super big. He's like a kid in a candy store. He's never seen such a cool ship. This is exactly what he dreamed of when it when he dreamed of growing up and becoming a pilot was being on a ship like this. That's right. Whether or not he thought he was going to be a smuggler or, you know, involved in some crime syndicate still, he, he didn't really care, but he envisioned flying on a ship like this. That's right. He also reveals at some point that, um, you know, it, the, the Millennium Falcon is a Carillion YT-1300 and it is uh, a model of ship that Han's father worked on before he was laid off and then at some point died. Um, and so he has a little bit of an attachment to it because it's from Corellia. So off they go to um, to fly into Kessel. And basically the way in isn't all that eventful, but it sort of sets up what goes on. And and what, what L7 describes to everybody is in order to get to Kessel, you have to fly through hyperspace to this thing called the Maelstrom and then follow a very specific pre-charted course through the maelstrom that involves a little bit of uh, regular space flying, a little bit of hyperspace flying, um, and the distance from the entrance to the planet is 20 parsecs. Um, And so they follow the prescribed path to get to Kessel, um, and they come up with a plan of how they're going to get into um, you know, this sort of illegal uh, spice mining slash coaxium mining for some reason um, thing that's owned by the Pikes and steal the coaxium. Right. And people lose track of the mission while they're here. That, that's the problem is they're seeing different things happen and they get split up and L7 winds up seeing all these droids enslaved uh, and, you know, they're on a timeline like they, they can't dawdle like they, they need to hustle. Yeah. But L7 instead decides to start a uh, droid slash uh, enslaved people revolution. Um, she rips the restraining bolt off this one droid, tells that droid to liberate the remaining droids, shuts down a lot of the security features and um, and so starts a slave riot and a droid riot. And they start smashing equipment. Things get all, all get all crazy. And meanwhile, Han and Chewbacca get separated because Chewbacca finds a bunch of other Wookiees that have been enslaved in this place and decides to try to help them. And so they leave it up to sort of Han to gather up the coaxium and get it out in the middle of the slave riot. Right. And Lando's there, too. And the last thing you need are people shooting guns with all this very volatile unrefined coaxium that's right but in the end the wookies um help han escape with the coaxium 
They loaded onto the Millennium Falcon. Interestingly, the Millennium Falcon, and this is something that, that I mentioned when we were watching it, and, and it always bothered me about it. It's a cargo ship, but the only like entrance exit ramp that it appears to have is that one ramp that you see all the time that can fit like one person at a time. So they've got these cylinders of coaxium that instead of going into like the cargo hold, they're loading them on one cylinder at a time up the boarding ramp, which seems like a like just not a very good cargo ship architecture, but the Millennium Falcon literally doesn't have like a cargo lift, which is very weird for a cargo ship, but whatever. It's a freighter, but is it? I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, and in the process of their escape, um, L7 gets shot several times. Right, and that's where we see Lando show a concerning amount of emotion for her. Uh, and he, he wants to go and save her. And so he's trying to like bring her body I guess is that what we're gonna call it? Sure, sure, sure. Bring her body onto the Falcon, and he's gonna try to fix her and repair her. But he like keeps breaking her even more, yep. which isn't great. Um, but the other thing is, is that L seven is the mathematician of plotting their flight pa- plans. So like they kind of do need her, uh, and so he brings uh what he can of her onto the ship. It, it's very sad. She dies in his arms. Yeah. 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 He has basically her head and part of her torso, and uh, and she kind of freaks out and dies. Um, and meanwhile, Han takes off, is flying away from this whole thing, and they've got now, now the clock is ticking on this coaxium for, again, plot reasons. And they get out into the maelstrom. Because L7 plotted their way in, Han sort of starts following it in reverse on the way out. And what, what does appear but a Star Destroyer blocking their path? Um, and Han's like, no, the Empire's not going to bother sending out TIE fighters for a little freighter like us as five TIE fighters appear out the belly of the Star Destroyer. So Han decides to take a, what he calls a shortcut, into the uncharted parts of the Maelstrom and leads the TIE fighters on a pretty epic long chase, uh, which I think a really nice touch in this is they play the same music uh, backing this as his escape through the asteroid field um, in uh, Empire Strikes Back. And so he's dodging asteroids and dodging TIE fighters in a very similar way with the same music, which is a, a pretty cool, uh, a, a cool moment. Um, but they end up, you know, in the middle of the maelstrom and f- realize that they have no way out. And so uh, Han comes up with the idea to wire L7's brain into the Millennium Falcon so that she can plot a course out of the maelstrom. Right. It does kind of make you wonder why they don't have computers built into the starships. Because, like, in Star Trek, there's a computer in every ship that can do everything. But if you don't bring a droid in Star Wars, your ship's not able to do much. Well, the ships in Star Wars have Navi computers, but they really only operate on known star charts and like pre-programmed routes because they have droids and the droids um, have a little bit more compute power. I agree with you. Like you would think your ship should have a lot of compute power, but L7's got some special amount of compute power, I guess. I don't know. doesn't matter. It's a thing. It's so, a plot device. So L7 gets wired into the ship just as they encounter some sort of uh, sort of a gravitational singularity and some sort of space critter that tries to eat them. doesn't matter. Uh, and just at the last minute, they, they're getting sucked into the singularity and they tell Beckett to inject a drop of raw coaxium into the fusion generator to make them go more. Yeah, because they need to go faster. 
or something, yeah. whatever. And it's uh, whatever. It's silly pseudo babble nonsense. But anyway, long story short, they escape the maelstrom, but the shortcut only takes them 13 parsecs of distance to get out instead of the normal 20, which is where we get our famous, I did the Kessel Run in 13 parsecs. I thought it was 12 parsecs. 12? It's, I thought he said 13. I thought it was 12. Yeah, whatever. It's less than 12? 12? 13? I don't know. doesn't. It really does matter. It does And matter. I should know this. That's really disappointing now. But whatever. Anyway, they do it in shorter than 20. <laughs> they do. They do. And uh, they they find themselves uh, basically almost crash landing onto uh, the planet with the refinery. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this coaxium's got going to blow. You guys better refine the you-know-what out of this. And... For whatever reason, the people on the planet are like, oh, yeah, we'll do this right away. You know, we didn't know you were showing up or anything, yeah. but they, they somehow make room for it and, and get it done. It's, you know, like if I was flying a plane and just decided I was going to land at DFW, but I didn't have a flight plan or anything. And yet they'd still have a terminal ready. Like that doesn't make any sense. Not really, but uh, whatever. It it's, doesn't uh, matter. It's a, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I say that a lot about this. It's just fun plot. Um, but they're on, yeah, they're on this planet that has sort of an abandoned refinery that they can use. And so they do this. And while this is refining and they're waiting for Dryden to come pick it up, who shows up but Emphis Nest? Those guys again. Yeah. And um, Han tries to bluff his way out of uh, the Emphis Nest encounter and it doesn't go very well. Han just basically takes the Falcon and flies away. Um, Lando does. Oh, sorry. God. Lando flies away, leaving them sort of high and dry. Um, and so Empress Ness says, she starts telling this story about a group of mercenaries who came to a planet and raided it several times. And eventually the people fought back against them and they cut out all of their tongues. And, um, and that group of mercenaries became Crimson Dawn. And it turns out that this planet is the very planet where, because no one speaks the whole time they're there. This is the tongue cut out planet. Um, they really don't like Crimson Dawn. They don't like that Kira is there. And they don't like that they're going to give the coaxium to Crimson Dawn. So we sort of enter into sort of the last phase of this movie where it's the convoluted plot to figure out what to do with the coaxium so that Han doesn't get killed. Right. And so Kira is starting to feel a little bit bad. We see her hide her Crimson Dawn tattoo. Uh, we start seeing just general panic amongst our, our criminal friends here in that they're trying to figure out how do they save their own skin? How do they not, um, you know, put the coaxium in the wrong hands? But how do they also not really, like, join the rebellion? Because that's not really what they're in for. They're all in it for themselves. That, that's what we know. That's right. And basically, Empress Ness says, if you don't give me the coaxium, I'm going to kill you. Um, but they say, well, Dryden Voss is coming with his whole little, like his little mini army. And if you don't, if we don't give it to him, he's going to kill all of us. And Emphis is kind of like, well, I'll fight Dryden Voss and this and that and whatever. And then Han's like, hang on, everybody, I've got a plan. And so he comes up with a fairly convoluted plan. And uh, in hearing at least the first part of the plan, Beckett decides he doesn't want any part of this. And he said he's going to run um, and run away from everybody. Uh, and so uh, what Han, Han and Chewbacca then, they wait for Dryden Voss and they take the boxes of coaxium and they go on to Dryden Voss's ship and they present the coaxium to him. Right. And Kira's with them. And what they wind up finding out, though, is that Beckett didn't run away. 
he ran to go rat out his former teammates to Dryden Voss. And so Dryden's like, oh, let me show you what's behind door number three, brings out Beckett. And then he questions, both Dryden and Beckett, question the veracity of the actual coaxium. Is this real coaxium? Ah, no, this looks like a really good fake. And so that's what they thought. It was a fake. That's right. And so they assumed that Emphis Nest had the real coaxium. So Voss sends his whole army to uh, get the coaxium from Memphis Nest. Nest ambushes his army. And then they realize that um, basically uh, Voss has no guards left on his ship. And Han brought the real coaxium. So Beckett now has a choice of he can either turn on Dryden and take the coaxium for himself or, you know, leave or whatever. And he decides to turn on uh, Dryden and he... Uh, basically holds Chewie at gunpoint, tells Chewie to take the Quaxium and leaves, leaving now uh, Han, uh, Dryden, and Kira alone in a room with no Quaxium. There's like two guards in there, maybe. Uh, Dryden, uh, no, uh, Beckett shoots the two guards. Oh, yeah. Right? Because right? remember, he guys. shoots the two yeah. guards, and Dryden's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I like to be the only one holding a gun when I'm thinking, um, which is pretty, that's a good line. Um, and so, yeah, so after he shoots those two guards and then he and Chewie take the coaxium and leave, leaving Han, Kira, and Dryden in the room together. And then this starts sort of a three-way uh, fight them out. <laughs> right, right. And what we wind up learning is that Kira's been busy. She is quite the fighter. She didn't seem, she seemed scrappy when we first met her on uh, Corellia, but she really didn't seem like she would be the kind of person with like crazy mixed martial arts skills. Um, Han is a, a gun guy and he winds up pretty much outmatched and Dryden Voss has that weird red knife stabby thing and so Han gets knocked down, his gun is out of reach and Kira is about ready to stab him. Yeah, and then and then she basically flips around and attacks Voss and kills him with his own knife. Yeah, yeah. A very, very interesting way how she does it. Because she leads Dryden Voss up until the very end thinking that she's going to kill Han. And then as soon as she turns on him, you can tell that he's worried that he's outmatched. Yeah. And he is outmatched because she totally kills him. Right. So then there's a quick reunion between Han and Kira. They, they kiss and he, she's like, go after Beckett, go get that coaxium, you know, give it to Enfys Nest. She doesn't want it going out with Beckett. And so, you know, she's worried about it. And she says, hey, I'll catch up with you. And at this point, I don't know if Han actually believes that she's going to meet up with him. But this is pretty much the coolest scene in the movie because it ties into so many other things is that Han walks out. She closes the blinds, she takes the ring off the dead guy's hand, and she plugs the ring into this like super communicator secret thing, and then who pops up, Kevin? It's Maul. Maul is the secret head of Crimson Dawn, and it's one of the coolest reveals um, that we've seen since probably like, you know, Luke, I am your father, um, that Maul is, is sort of sitting on a throne, 
and uh, she reports to him that um, Dryden Voss is dead. She, you know, couldn't have, she, she maybe could have prevented it, but she wasn't there. And, um, you know, Beckett's got the coaxium and, um, you know, everything's falling apart. She interestingly does not mention Han and Chewie at all in this, in this, in, in this discussion with him. And uh, Maul tells her to come meet her on Dathomir, which is his home base now. Yeah, which we remember is the planet of the Night Sisters. Yeah, so it's literally his home planet. Um, and says they're going to be working closely together from now on. Right, right, right. Um, but no, it was a really cool reveal. And um, just a, a lot of excitement in that. Because we think, oh my gosh, you know, Han's going to get his lady. And we know at some point Han's going to lose said lady. Because he's, you know not with her when we meet him in A New Hope, but we, we think maybe he might go off into the galaxy and have his uh, significant other with him. But instead, that's not the case. Uh, she sees an opportunity for power. She sees an opportunity to make money and to take care of number one. That's right. And the other thing is, is that when she made that call to reach out to Maul and spin the story the way that she wanted it spun, she was putting herself even more deep into the organization. Yeah, that's right. She is clearly committed to um, to you know being a big shot in Crimson Dawn, and um, while she probably did have legitimate feelings for Han, they were never going to stop her ambition. No, exactly, and that just kind of goes back to the theme of what we saw about uh, the Sith and and their power in Episode Three, where you know Palpatine's explaining to Anakin about power and how to hold on to it. And so, you know, she's seeing opportunity for power. And, and it's not just a Sith that crave it. it. It's everyone, really. Yeah. And this is also the other interesting thing of this reveal is like we haven't we really never saw what became of Maul. If you, uh, you know, if you're following along all the stories at the the last time we saw him in Clone Wars, he was being sort of captured and tortured by Darth Sidious. And he said, I have other plans for you. We saw that in the past. He had led a criminal syndicate. He basically killed all of the leaders of Black Sun and took over criminal syndicates and used that to take over Mandalore. So this isn't the first time he's been a crime lord. Um, and um, and then, you know, we saw him being, you know, like I said, being captured by Sidious. And then we really didn't see him again. And so now this is sort of like the next chapter and what happens with uh, with Maul. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see him again later uh, when we talk about Rebels. Um, but you know, this is the, the next waypoint in his journey and he's, he's back in, you know, back in a pretty, pretty powerful position. Um, and so just a cool evolution of his story. Right. And, you know, I, I think that hopefully there's going to be some more content that explains what happens with Crimson Dawn in the galaxy, uh, just so that we can get a little bit more, uh, understanding of where they come into place and why they kind of fade away as yeah. well, because, you know, Han has to know that Kira is still out there and yet, you know, he's he's not with her. So, yep. So Han rushes out and he ends up intercepting uh, Chewbacca and Beckett on a beach. And um, he's kind of standing in your your typical gunslinger position. Um, and uh, Beckett starts talking to him and starts monologuing. And one of the things he says is like, you know, I hope you're still paying attention. And just as just as he says that well actually right before that you know it is you know han's just like i i can't believe this and beckett's like look man you know kira shot 
dry or killed Dryden, right? And you know, he knows exactly what just happened. And he he's just saying one thing after another. And then Han says, you know what your problem is? You think everyone is like you. And so, you know, Han's trying to be like, look, I'm not a bad guy and, and I don't see why you always look for the bad in the situation. That That's what he's telling Beckett. And then to your point, Kevin, Beckett starts saying, well, there's still the one lesson that I, I've been trying to tell you that you refuse to listen to me. You just don't pay attention. And we see Beckett's hand go to the, his gun trigger. And then all of a sudden, that's it. Because Han shot him. That's right. And Han definitely shoots first in this case. Oh, and how? Uh, yeah. Um, and Han, and I think Han's reply to him saying, um, you know, you think everyone's like you. Um, uh, Han says, but I'm not, right? And then, but then he does, in fact, shoot him. And, and, uh, and as he's dying, Beckett says, he's like, you made the right choice, kid. I was just about to kill you. Right, right. Yeah, no, Han basically holds his friend slash mentor in his arms watching him die as he shot him and Beckett's like yeah that was the right choice uh so you know it's Han and Chewie they give the coaxium to Enfys Nest uh Enfys Nest suggests that they join the rebellion and she's like this has given us hope and you know just you know given birth to the rebellion and all of that and Han's like no I'm just not into it and she said well maybe one day you will think differently and he and Chewie start walking away. They don't have a ride off the plane off the planet, so I guess they're gonna hitchhike somehow throughout the galaxy. But yeah, it doesn't. You know, another doesn't matter. Uh, presumably, some of Emphasis people probably have ships because they keep popping up in places, and you never really see their ships. So I used to just assume that they've got some kind of ship stash somewhere. Um, and then the the movie kind of ends in a in a brief scene where. Um, you know, it's on some tropical planet. You hear Lando talking. There's another card game going on. Yeah, he's sweet talking uh, to ladies sitting next to him at the card table. Yeah. And uh, Han walks in and Lando's like, oh, my goodness, you're alive. Blah, blah. Where's my cut? And Han's like, no, 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 no cut. And as he's uh, sort of hugging, shaking Lando's hand, he notices he's got a well, little. Well, he wasn't even going to hug him. He was maybe going to like beat the you know what out of him because he wanted Chewie to take his arms off um but then Han gets a glimpse up Lando's sleeve yeah and he's got a cheater card hiding up his sleeve the green Psylocke that he needed to get the idiots array in the previous card game so Han goes in for a hug and palms that card off him and then challenges him to a game of sabacc again right because uh Enfys Nest gave him a tiny little cylinder of coaxium before he left so he's like this has got to be good enough to you know stake me for a buy-in and so you know Lando's like I'll take your coaxium why not and so they sit down they play cards and once again we see that Han is very good at playing cards that's right and they get again to the point where Han is betting his whole pot against the Millennium Falcon and Lando's like okay man and he reaches for his cheater card, doesn't have it. And Han basically, and then Lando flips over a pretty decent hand. And Han's like, well, you would have beat me if you had this. And he holds up his cheater card and he's like, but I have this. And then he wins the Falcon and um, him and Chewie fly off to uh, some really big gangster on Tatooine who's got a huge job that, that they want to get in on. 
Right, right. This was something that Beckett had kind of mentioned about doing a couple more jobs before, you know, he was going to be able to retire. And one of those jobs was for Job of the Hut. Um, so this gangster on Tatooine. So th that's how we learn how Han gets roped in with, uh, you know, Job of the Hut down the road. There's, a, what, about 10 more years until the Battle of Yavin at this point? Yep, that's about right. Yeah, so Han and Chewie, they've got some adventures to go on. They definitely seem to enjoy their time in the Millennium Falcon. You kind of see them really like they're flipping every switch. They're super excited to be flying. So, you know, that's where the movie ends. And, and we see the dice hanging as well. Yeah, and those dice come back a few times, right? Um, those dice, we'll, we'll talk about them when we talk about the post cools trilogy. Um, just two Easter eggs that I wanted to call out that we didn't mention through the through the thing. One is in um, in the uh, in the scene on Kessel when Han and Chewbacca are sort of escaping their guards. Um, Chewbacca tears the arms off one of the guards and ends up holding up two arms. Uh, and then Han says something about like, "Great, that would that uniform would have fit me." And this is this goes back to uh, to jokes several points about Wookiees tearing people's arms off if they if they get mad. Um, and then the other one is on the on the beach right before Lando sort of leaves the refinery. Uh, he and he and Han are standing next to each other, and Han says, "That's a hell of a ship." And Lando just looks at him and says, "I hate you." I know. Yeah, and Han says, "I know," which is uh, which is pretty great line yeah so we haven't really i mean other than maybe some like friendships and some childhood love that you know really was just puppy love and maybe desperate times call for desperate measures because they were both enslaved by the same you know tyrant uh what do we learn about love and marriage and relationships from this well i mean i think that like you said there's a there's a thing about i guess uh you know kid relationships don't uh, make it through growing up although sometimes they do yeah yeah we we did all right yeah so. we did all right um i think like we talked about there's an interesting uh droid love situation in this one yeah that that is interesting i, I mean it, it's better than like no i don't think it's better never mind i'm not gonna go there okay all right um and then i think the uh the other one um that that's really interesting is this sets up the uh han and chewy relationship and there are a lot of different you know takes on that relationship one han's the captain and chewy's the first mate but i think there's some other interesting explanations right right and i i think you know han and chewy were were basically equals and I, I think that we didn't really get that through some of the original trilogy yeah um, I really like one that floats around uh, on the internet a little bit and everything like at this point Chewie and they point this out in the movie that he's what 190 years, 190 old, years old right yeah. and uh, and Han of course is you know this brash like 20 year old or whatever and uh, there, there and there's a point where Chewie like finds other Wookiees and he could kind of go off with them but he kind of is like Wookiee guys I gotta go and I gotta take care of this guy and it's almost like Han's like his pet or his like not quite his kid but like almost like and there's this running there's running joke on the on the internet about like how han's actually like chewy's dog right and, and you can kind of see that a little bit yeah you know, he, he's always got to keep an eye out for him yeah, yeah. and so chewy's definitely kind of takes on this role of like just sort of quiet guardian of han and he's always got his back and he kind of goes along with han's wacky schemes but you know he kind of knows better he's been around a while yeah because we do learn that like chewy's got to go back to his wife and kids like we, we thought that you know he had been captured and he was on his way to get back to his family but you know he gets pretty sidetracked yeah a little bit yeah yeah 
Yeah. Um, I, I guess the other thing that we see as far as relationships go is, um, you know, Beckett and Val when, you know, Val's like, it's been a hell of a ride, you know, and just blows up the bridge. Like, you know, she was so focused on the mission, you know, like that that had to succeed. They had to get the coaxium um, that she was willing to sacrifice their relationship. And so, you know, they I guess it was like the one time there was maybe honor among thieves and it wasn't, it didn't work out. Not great. No. Yeah. Yeah. So where does this set us up to go from here? So, I mean, this is basically, we're now, you know, 10 years before the Battle of Yavin. I think probably, you know, chronologically in terms of content, the next thing that we run into is uh, is Rebels. Rebels starts about five years before the Battle of Yavin. So, you know, content-wise, there's, there's four seasons of Rebels that take place over about a four or a five-year period. And then Rogue One is the next movie that takes place right before the Battle of Yavin. And then we've come full circle back to uh, the original trilogy. So... Um, you know, this movie, this is not, we're not ending on a, on a sad note this time. This is a fun movie. You know, some folks die, some folks live, you know, Han and Chewie get their ship and they're off having adventures in the galaxy. Right. I I agree. And, you know, a lot of the things that we talked about, the plot where it doesn't really matter, truly it doesn't really matter. This is about getting to meet the characters, getting to learn about moral ambiguity and how that plays within the galaxy and just kind of see, uh, you know, where these adventures lead people, introduction to characters. I, I really do think that, you know, it was well cast. We we enjoyed meeting everyone through it. Yep. So. Yeah. Um, this is probably the, there is only one use of the force in the whole movie. And that is when Darth Maul is talking to Kira, he kind of force grabs his lightsaber. But this is like the, the least force um, influenced uh, Star Wars content. So it's sort of the first piece of content about just regular folks doing regular folk things in the galaxy, even if they're criminals. Yeah, they were pretty much all terrible people. There are no good people left in the galaxy, basically. Yeah. Like well, even Enfys Nest, like they're the good guys trying to help, you know, arm the rebellion and they're, you know, terrorists, basically. Yeah. 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 Everybody's. It's tough times. It's a lawless time. It is a lawless time. But, you know, speaking of time, I think that's all we probably have for tonight. I agree. I love you. I know.